Well, as a great Jedi master once said, hello there. <laughs> Give me just a few moments to get comfortable here. New environment, new space. Got to test it out real quick. Got to watch the clock. Watch your steps, don't fall. They, they, they do blend in very easily. It is very hard to miss them, especially because looking on this side of me, I see the light is actually coming in in such a way that they just are practically invisible. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. It's up there on the screen. Now, I will say this about my slides. I am not a very visually imaginative person. So my slides are very basic for, for two reasons. One is that. And, and two, I had the, the horrendous vision that I was going to, to put all this work in the nice fancy slides like I see Jimmy do every week, and then I was going to get up here and try and drop them into this computer, and they were just going to completely change or fall apart or whatever. And so I just kept my slides as basic as possible for this first time around. They, they can get more imaginative as time goes on. But we're coming here to the end of a year we're in the last season of the year, Christmas, but I'm not going to really speak on anything Christmassy quite yet. You got one song, well, two uh, here this morning. P Presley? Paisley. Sorry? Paisley. Paisley. Paisley, hey, great job on that song. As I was mentioning before, I love that whole album that song is off of. It's called The Birth of a King by uh, Tommy Prophet, who arranged all these old songs, and then he gets Christian artists to come in and sing them. Oh, Lauren... Diggle, Daigle, however you say her name. It's great uh, on that song. You did great on that. It was phenomenal. I, I, I was listening to it in the youth room before Sunday school started. I'll be listening to it in the car on the way home. The Birth of a King by Tommy Prophet. Get it. It's wonderful. I, I, as I told the youth this morning, I'm not the most emotionally vibrant person, but that whole album really does pull at my heartstrings in ways that are not very typical for me. And this morning, I want to give you something to think about between now and the end of the year. In a lot of ways, this is going to be a New Year's type of sermon, but I want to give you, what, 35 days? How many days are left in the year? Left to, to let it settle, let it ponder in your minds and in your hearts to maybe change and reflect your 2023 and quite possibly ALF's 2023. If you don't know me, by the way, my name is Chuck. I haven't yet gotten around to meeting everybody. Uh, it, I, I'm still fairly new here. I've been here since mid-October, I think. And look, they're already letting me preach. So this could go horribly wrong or horribly right. We're all going to find out. We're all in this together. Now, I've entitled this sermon, The King and the Cause United. And that picture of Spider-Man from, uh, what was his first movie? Homecoming, where the ship's falling apart and he's trying to hold the ship back together, I think is an apt metaphor that I stumbled across at the very last minute. I was like, what, what is a good image to start things off with? And I just happened to Google, like, I think I Googled the word united. And all of a sudden, here's Spider-Man pulling parts of a boat in two different directions, trying to hold them together. And I said, you know what? That's a lot of the times what pastoring and what preaching is like. Because two things are, are oftentimes just in, in this chaotic fallen world, falling apart in, in different directions that are meant to be united. And we could go all different directions with that, but I want to go one very specific direction. Now let's see if, if I can work the button correctly. There are three things that I think all Christians need. This is not original to me. I borrowed this from uh, a guy in Austin that, that said this to me about two years ago. He said, all Christians need three things. They need a king, they need a cause, and they need a crew. And since then, my piece of adding to that is uh, finding different ways to say it. You need a Christ, you need a commission, and you need a community or a church. Why? The alliteration's in the second column. Why didn't I just use Christ instead of king in the first one? Two, two reasons. One, that's king, cause, and, cry, uh, and crew was how he said it to me. So I, I, I kept his original language. But also, I like the term king more often than Christ because we hear the word Christ and it's oversaturated in our minds. 
and we don't apply that thinking to what the New Testament authors actually used when they used the term. When they used the term Christ, they meant Messiah. Mission, multitude, pick one. Nope. My columns got off a little bit. Look at that. Didn't notice. When they say Christ, they mean Messiah. When they say Messiah, they mean king. So I will predominantly use the term king. But look, I'm just giving you the same terms alliterated here just to orient our minds around the same thing. Everybody needs a ruler, they need a responsibility, and they need a retinue. See, this is why you don't do fancy slides, because as soon as you drop them in from a, a Mac to a PC, they shift a little bit. Need a ruler, a responsibility, a retinue, a prince, a purpose, and a people. But let's just stick to the first one. Three things all Christians need. They need a king, they need a cause, and they need a crew. Now, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the king and the cause here this morning out of Matthew 28. And I'm going to just assume the crew a little bit, all right? If you're wondering who the crew is, look around. Hopefully you already kind of know the answers to the king and the cause aspect of this. They're not fancy riddles or anything. I'm just trying to give us a paradigm in which to think and to process here. Because what we're going to find from the apostles when they visit the Lord resurrected on this mountaintop is that they need help trying to understand the significance of what they've just lived through in order to orient their life and go live out the cause. So here's the question for this morning. How obedient to King Jesus' cause have you been in 2022 Again, you got about 35-ish days left to settle on it, to, to look back and reflect on your 2022 and answer the question. And maybe the first question that you're asking is, what cause? Well, in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, you get a passage that is often nicknamed the Great Commission. So one of those alliterated things up there that I get all the points for alliteration, right? Uh, all the points for alliteration. A cause or a commission, the Great Commission. Huh? Yeah, see, it's all coming together. Maybe you heard this nickname for it before, but w what I want to attempt to do this morning is to show you what often gets overlooked in these verses by modern readers as we attempt to deal with this passage as the fun fundamental reason why what we overlook ends up causing us to fail to fulfill that commission. What do we fundamentally miss about this passage, the Great Commission? I would argue we fundamentally miss the gospel itself. That Jesus is king of heaven and earth forevermore. By missing our king, we misunderstand our commission and we fail to fulfill that commission in our crew, in our community, in our churches. And, and, you know, I haven't been here long enough at ALF to, to actually know the details. So when I say we, I don't mean us here. I, I, I typically mean more of Western Christianity that ALF is a part of. So, so don't tr take this overly personal. We don't know each other well enough for that to apply. Maybe it does and maybe it doesn't in, in various degrees. But just know I'm not trying to come down hard on you. I'm trying to, to come to the end of my year and process my 2022, my experiences and what I've seen and understood and what Scripture has to say in light of that. And you're just getting the overflow of that here this morning. So let's read the passage together. It's only five verses. And then we'll start to break it down. But we'll focus more on verses 16 through 18 than verses 20, uh, 19 and 20 this morning. I think if we understand a bit more about those three verses, the other two, which usually get more screen time anyways, will naturally make more sense and we won't have to spend anywhere near the amount of time on them that normally gets devoted to them. So here's the passage. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, often called the Great Commission, says this. I'm going to pick up my NIV and actually read it from this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Let's break this down. Verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus told them to go. Why 11? Why not 12? Well, Judas has already betrayed Jesus and he's dead. So, there's 11 would-be apostles left. Very soon they'll start being called apostles and, and not so much disciples. And I will call them apostles, despite the fact that in the passage proper, they're still called disciples. So the 11 apostles left go to Galilee. Now, is there, is there more people here with them that, that often get, gets debated? Now, it is possible that more than just strictly the 11 are present. But here's the thing. We only hear talk by Matthew of the 11 apostles because they will become the foundation of the church, right? They're going to be the crews. And, and the, the point is, whatever gets said to these 11 will apply to everyone. That is how Matthew is trying to tell us the story and set the tone for the story, regardless of any historical details. Happens all the time. Historians leave out all sorts of details. If there's more people there than just 11 plus Jesus, the point is this applies to everybody who's going to believe the message of the 11. Not a, not a difficult fact. So uh, let's talk about geography for a moment because this gets overlooked. Why Galilee? Well, if you back up to uh, Matthew 28, verses 8 through 10, the two women, both named Mary, who are the first to see Jesus after his resurrection, are told, go tell the disciples to go from Jerusalem back up to Galilee by Jesus after he's resurrected. Go find them, tell them to go meet me in Galilee, and, and I'll meet with them up there. So why Galilee? Why go all the way back to the north? I mean, this is, they don't have cars. They have to walk. It's going to be a few days, three to five days, depending on weather, depending on if any of the Romans are bullying them along the way. Why do they have to go all the way back up there? Because if you read the book of Acts, you, you find out Jesus tells them, look, go back to Jerusalem. Why the unnecessary journey? Or at least when you compare Matthew to other places, because for Matthew, it's not an unnecessary journey. If you go back to the beginning of the the book in Matthew 4.12, Jesus starts his, his public ministry in this region. After his wilderness temptations, he goes north to Galilee to begin his ministry. And while he's there in, in uh, verses 18 through 25, uh, still at chapter 4, Jesus calls the first portion of the 12 apostles in this region. So what? Who cares? Why is geography all that important? Because Matthew is trying to do something that we often overlook to rush to the importance of Jesus' words. He's setting the, the, the stage for the story itself. Galilee is where public ministry began. Now it is where one portion ends and a new beginning is to, supposed to take place. He's bringing the story and their experience, full circle. This is as fancy of pictures as you're going to get. <laughs> Matthew is intentionally and deliberately doing this. Jesus is intentionally de deliberately doing this to bring the apostles back to where it all began so that he can pass along his public ministry to them. That's why Matthew only brings up the 11, only really cares about it. Go back to where it all started. Because something new is coming now. One ending telecast a new beginning. There's a change here. Everything that you've experienced for these last few years was good and perfect and necessary. But now you need something else. We'll talk about why here as we get into the importance of the mountain. The mountain motif. Good word motif. Your, your kids in literature class, you should know what a motif is. A repetitious symbol over and over and over again used to help the author explain his meaning. The mountain is a very important motif in scripture. The mountain are historical places where God and humans meet to talk about important stuff. The ministry of Jesus was very important. But before that, all Israel 
met with God on mountains from time to time. You know, the, co- the concept of the mountain is, is like this. You, you meet with God there because ordinary life doesn't take place on mountains. And so a mountain which reaches to the heavens where God or the gods are becomes the meeting place for the gods to come down and for men to come up. Conceptually, it makes perfect sense to them. So all throughout their history, they meet with God on mountains. Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai meet with God to receive the Torah, the instruction, the law, whatever term you use. Elijah, he met with the prophets of of Baal on Mount Carmel, where God was meeting with all of Israel to challenge those prophets. And then when that didn't go the way he wanted, he fled down to Mount Sinai, and he was not supposed to go there. He abandoned his ministry in the northern kingdom to flee hundreds of miles out of his way to Sinai, which is why when he gets there, God asks him, what are you doing here? I didn't tell you to come here. Elijah was wanting God to be as powerful as he was when he met with Israel on that mountain, and God told him, no, go back and live your daily life off the mountain. The temple. David gets the, the, the temple land, which is the highest point of Jerusalem, a mountaintop area in Jerusalem to build the temple because God and people meet on the temple spots. Temples are built on mountains, okay? When it comes to Jesus, he said and did important things on top of mountains. You've got the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's the king's inaugural address in the book of Matthew. His, his public ministry in Galilee starts with this, right? The transfiguration, kind of the midway point as far as the story goes, is a mountain. Matthew 17. And then finally we get the Great Commission, the king's parting words. So what? So, Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus is going to say something really, really important for God's people. And he wants the weight of that importance to be unmistakable. So he telecasts it by location. Generally, they're in Galilee. That's important. Specifically, they're on top of a mountain. So that's doubly important. So let's not shrug it off. Because if we do, we will miss the gravity of these words for all people. Verse 17. We're going to look at at these words in in just a moment. What are the specific words starting in verse 18? But first, verse 17 tells us these 11 men's attitude. And I think this is very important. When when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The 11, following the example of the the two Marys back earlier in this chapter in in 28.9, when the two Marys saw Jesus, they fall down and they worship. But the, the 11 have an additional component. They doubted. Now, doubted here is translated by the NIV. This word is probably better translated, they hesitated. Why? Great question. The word only appears here and in Matthew 14, 31. When Peter is walking on water and he sinks into the water and then Jesus reaches out and rescues him and then asks him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So this tells us something about the meaning of the word. The, the word carries the idea of hesitation, indecisiveness, or just some general idea of uncertainty. Just as Peter had faith enough to walk on the water, but was uncertain of some of the details when he saw the wind and the rain all around him. So the 11 apostles, they are worshiping Jesus, but they are hesitating because they do not fully understand the details of Jesus being alive again from the dead. The reality in front of them is so beyond their understanding that they are in awestruck wonder of, and, and they don't fully know what course of action to follow in light of it. They don't know what to commit to. Do they worship him? But we're monotheists of the strictest sense in Judaism. Should we even be worshiping this man? He's alive again from the dead. So I kind of think so, but I'm not entirely sure. They worship with indecisiveness, just as Peter walked on water with the same sort of hesitation and indecisiveness. But he still walked on water, and they still worshiped. 
So let's try and put it in, per, in perspective for what exactly they're seeing here so we can understand the point. They, what, what are they so hesitant about? I mean, they've seen people rise from the dead, right? They're, they're not unwilling to believe. They just don't know how to act. So why? Why are they so hesitant? They've seen people rise from the dead before, right? What's the difference? They've seen Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader that Matthew records. She died earlier that day. Jesus raised her up. Say, okay, but that was like a same day kind of thing. Lazarus was dead for four days before Jesus raised him. So they've seen people come back from death. But what's the difference? There are differences between what, what gets labeled as resuscitation and resurrection, right? Jesus is strictly resurrected. These other people were resuscitated. They were dead. So don't let the word think that they were just swooning or passing out. They were dead. But here, here's the difference. Um, Jesus never resurrected a mangled corpse. That's part of it. Jairus' daughter just died earlier that day. Lazarus had only begun to decay. And to put that in a little bit of perspective for these 11 men, they, they witnessed Jesus' whipping, the flesh being torn from his bones. I mean, they may not have been there, but they saw what he looked like after that. He was beaten. They knew he'd been crucified. They knew he was dead. They buried him. They wouldn't have buried him if they were dead. To put this in, in perspective a, a little bit, if you saw somebody who was shot through with an AR-47 until the clip was emptied, and they were completely and utterly riddled with holes, and then a week later they were standing up talking to you, would you know how to actually talk back? W would you know what course of action to take? They've never seen anything like Jesus' mangled corpse get up and talk. Everything that they've seen up to then has not been quite as extreme in a certain sense as Jesus' resurrection. So that's one thing. The, sec the second thing is this. Everyone who returned to life bef before they were brought back by Jesus in the same state, th they died in the same state. They were not brought back resurrected the, the same way that you and I exist right now. And so they die again. They were still mortals. And they die all over again. Jesus, however, is resurrected. To what sense? He is now really and truly a physically resurrected life form. I know that's kind of a scientific way of saying it, but I'm trying to make a point here. He's something new that nobody's ever seen before. The prophets brought people back from the dead. Elijah and Elijah did it. But, but they've never seen this. No, th this has never existed. This is new. What is so new about Jesus? He is now immortal, indestructible, incorruptible. A man who was dead is alive, never to die again. That's new creation. That's something that God promised to do in the Old Testament. They promised through the prophets that he would one day do. And now they're living through it and experiencing it. And they just don't know how, how to handle it. That's why the 11 are so hesitant. Even while they're worshiping. Because for the first time in humanity, and thus far for the only time, but we're promised the same thing will happen to us when Christ comes. A man who is dead is alive again, never to die again. They don't know what to make of this new reality. They need Jesus' help to understand the meaning of what they are seeing and what they are experiencing. So verses 18 through 20 are that clarification. That revelation on top of the mountain. Let me explain to you what you've just lived through in my death. Let me explain to you what you're seeing now that I'm resurrected and what you should do about it. But before we break that down in verse 18, let's stop for a moment. Let's just let the humanity of the apostles settle over us. They're completely and utterly overwhelmed. And, and I think it, it's perfectly understandable what, what it is they're feeling and going through. Maybe we can cut them a little slack in their hesitation and in their doubt because we know a little bit about what it is to be so overwhelmed we don't know how to act. Have you ever been confused by something in the Bible? Yeah, if you're not nodding along, you're either not reading the Bible or you're, you're 
lying to yourself, okay? The Bible is deeply confusing to us modern Americans. Have you ever read something and you didn't fully know what it meant and so you didn't know what to do with it? Happens all the time. Not not just with the Bible. When have you been confronted with anything in reality that was so overwhelming that you were just left kind of paralyzed with emotions and circumstances that needed to be processed? That's the time of doubt. That's the time of hesitation and confusion that's come over them. Do you immediately throw out your faith? I don't think so. I hope not. And neither did they. They just need some clarity to understand. They need time to let it soak in and process what to do about the hero who had trampled over death and is now alive again forevermore. They just need a little time. And you know what? It is okay to need time. That is natural. What Jesus is trying to do is is provide them explanations, and then they're going to go back into Jerusalem, and they're going to take time to understand it. Life can come at us with such speed that we just feel unable to move at all from time to time. Even when God is the one moving in such powerful ways, we don't always know how to respond. So what do you do? Take time. Slow down. Clarify the events. Clarify the feelings. Contrary to modern thinking, just let it all wash over you. Uh, Let God's perspective be your guide. But look, when it's overwhelming... You just, you don't always have to understand and act immediately. You just don't. And there's a lot of people in this world, in in this fast-paced environment of of the gods we carry around in our pocket that that always connect us and are always moving us towards one thing or another. And we just don't need to move that fast. Just because you can act doesn't mean you have to act. Now, I'll, I'll say it like this. You have to devote the time to understanding so that you can act eventually. Eventually, these apostles are going to have to act. But for right now, they're they're just going to go back to Jerusalem. They're going to spend time together. They're going to pray. They're going to talk about it. They're going to think it through. And then the Spirit's going to fall. All that's Acts chapter 1. So that when God is ready to move, these, these men can be ready to move with him. They're going to need time to meditate, to concentrate. So the apostles in this moment, and and maybe us here today, they need two things clarified for them about Jesus and by Jesus. Number one, what is the meaning and the purpose of Jesus' resurrection? And number two, what are they supposed to do about it? Jesus answers both in verses 18 through 20, but I'm going to focus on verse 18 and the answer to number one there. What is the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus? For two reasons. One, we just naturally overlook the resurrection in our churches. It is just a modern staple of Christianity today. It's, it's the least significant point of Jesus' story to most Christians today, as long as it's not Easter, but it's actually what the gospel is all about. If we can clearly grasp the significance of this, verses 19 through 20 will flow naturally. So for the remainder of the time, we're going to hit verse 18, and then we'll flow quickly through 19 and 20. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth, has been given to me. Now, when you hear these verses, the so-called Great Commission, how often does verse 18 get quoted along with it? Yeah. That's a bold statement. What does that mean? What is the purpose of that? There there are so many different points to the resurrection, and we just don't have time to hit them all. You couldn't do it all in a year if you spent every Sunday on it. So let's boil it down to two reasons. Why Jesus needed to be resurrected from the dead. One, the resurrection was public vindication that Jesus was in fact God's chosen king, meant to rule and restore the world as he claimed to be. These were his claims during his ministry. This is what he believed about himself. God proved that he was right when he vindicated him. And the resurrection means his death is unique. So let's just very quickly break this down. What is vindication? It's just being proven right about something. There's this uh, show called Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's not on the air anymore, but it's, it's a comedic cop show. And uh, the, the police sergeant at one point, one of his detectives is getting married, and he gets tasked with creating an, an, uh, the, the most elegant arc to get married under. And he immediately tells the wedding coordinator, a balloon arc, right, I understand. And then everybody throughout the entire episode is telling him that a balloon arc 
is not eloquent. It's, it's not the right thing to get married under. And so at the end of the episode, he's trying to hide it from the detective who, who's getting married. And she like busts into his office and she sees it. And she's like, it's beautiful. And, and he's like, vindication. And then it, the, the episode just cuts off right there because he was proven right. He was the only person who said that entire episode that it was an eloquent thing to do. Well, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. That, that quote there from an early Christian creed or song or something to just summarize the gospel. But part of that was being vindicated by the spirit. That's how he's referencing resurrection in that passage, right? The resurrection, in part, proves that Jesus' claim about himself was in fact true. Now, Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. This tells us who Jesus thought himself to be. Before his death, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's what he wants people to take away from his ministry. Well, the Son of Man is a figure in Daniel 7, in two verses, 13 and 14, which say this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. Authority? That brings us back to Matthew 28, 18. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples in every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is this figure who actually comes from earth into heaven and receives all the sovereign powers in and over creation as a means to deal with these corrupt powers that if you read from the start of that chapter in Daniel 7, you'd see are are everywhere on the earth. So when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, it is his belief, him telecasting himself, that by means of a Roman cross, he will take command of the powers of the universe. Or... All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. He's claiming this since his baptism, his resurrection to immortal life is the vindication that he was right to claim these things before his death. Everybody else was wrong. He was right. Vindication. It's it's fun to say. I'm not going to lie. It's fun to say. So God really has turned everything in creation over to his son, Jesus. He is the rightful king. Just as the promises in the Old Testament in some ways, suggest. And so, if he's vindicated, he's the rightful king, this should mean that his death is unique. And this is is the part that we we typically focus on. We, We care that Jesus died for us. We don't really pay attention to what comes next. Let's flip that around here this morning. We read the story as if it's alone about the cross and the atonement. We pay little attention to the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus beyond Easter. But what Jesus is explaining to them, to these 11 men on the mountaintop, is that the resurrection that vindicates Jesus is how to properly understand the crucifixion. The proper lens by which we understand the cross is the resurrection and the enthronement of King Jesus. Just like your glasses. I'm wearing contacts right now. So, you know, contacts, glasses. Do you see them? You see through them, right? You don't exactly notice the lenses themselves. It's not exactly the same point as as looking at the resurrected Jesus, but the lens by which you're actually supposed to understand and see the cross that he's trying to explain to these 11 men is to say, look at me now, alive again from the dead, never to die again, vindicated in everything that I told you. Now you can look back and start understanding everything else. Now you've got what you need. Let me say it like this. This is a bold statement too. There is no atonement without enthronement. If Jesus is not alive again from the dead, you and I are still in our sins. Right? Isn't that what Paul says? And he says it right here in 1 Corinthians. I've just put a few verses up here to uh, to save time. But he says this in verse 17. If Messiah has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So wait, wait, wait. Messiah can die? And it's not actually enough? No, he would just be another guy who claimed to be the Messiah that Rome killed. They did it all the time, right? 
So we must understand the resurrection's necessity. But Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Messiah, the first fruits, and when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, and he will hand over the kingdom of God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, meaning evil, corrupted powers, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. He doesn't actually explain Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He just assumes it. If he's raised from the dead, he's the ruling and reigning Lord, the King. And we don't pay much attention to that because as long as he went to the cross, we've got our forgiveness. But see verse 25 right there, that last bolded point, is making the same point as Matthew 28, 18. He is the current ruling and reigning resurrected Messiah. He is the king who would end all corrupt powers in the future by his present reign. That is the gospel story. What is the gospel story? The one gospel is the story of how Jesus became king over the entire planet by crucifixion. So look, we've included the crucifixion, but now you have to ask, start asking yourself questions beyond it just by tweaking the language a little bit, just by rewording it, redefining the gospel terms. This, the, the cross is a dramatic climax, but the theological climax is the status of the resurrected king that follows. And we need to go back in, in our 2022 and look over our time and focus on how much we haven't focused on the resurrection, how much emphasis we've taken away from it by looking only at the cross. Instead, look at the resurrection and understand the cross, and your 2023 will start changing. Messiah's story doesn't end at the cross. We need, let me say it like this, Jesus did not go to the cross, but through the cross to become the crowned king. That's just tweaking a little bit of what most of us already believe. But it helps us put the emphasis where the New Testament authors put the emphasis. Where Jesus is putting the emphasis and Matthew's putting the emphasis. And what Paul is assuming in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all there. How many times do we look at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 9, and we just stop after verse 8? Because verse 9 says, Therefore he was given the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Speaking of that exaltation, and we just stop right after we get to to the end of his humiliation, his passion and his crucifixion. The fact that we read these things this way tells us our own thinking, that we leave some verses out. The fact that we follow the Great Commission, starting in verse 19, but we don't pay attention and unite it to verse 18 is a problem. We can't divorce the gospel itself from the gospel of the king from the king's own commission. We must start trying to pull those things back together in our thinking. And I'm trying to give you this now so that you have time to do this. Because, I mean, If you're following the commission itself, it doesn't matter if you go across the street. It doesn't matter if you go across the world. What is the message that you're going to be saying? That their land, their home, and everything that they experience in life is under the authority of King Jesus. And they have to learn to submit their lives under that reign as you and I are hopefully already in the process of learning. Now you're tweaking how you present the gospel because you're not saying, hey, you know how you have the sin problem? You know, you know that God dealt with your sin problem? I mean, the, the starting point with, with the way that I'm telling you this is actually Jesus, not the person you're actually sharing him with. And that rebalances the scales. That's what I'm trying to say. The scales are out of balance. And when we look only at the cross and we don't care about what happens next, it creates a certain amount of apathy. Apathy towards Jesus' authority. We use him to get our forgiveness. We're happy to take the Messiah, spill his blood, take his life away. We get our sins forgiven, and then we just run off and we live however we want. We never bother caring about what happened next to him or what should happen next to us because we divorce living from the living Lord. So let's talk about rebalancing the scales. All right, that's the most fancy picture you're going to get. Are the scales of today's Christian activity in balance pre- and and post-resurrection. I mean, do we look at the cross 
the whole cross and nothing but the cross, and we put the cross on one side of these scales and the resurrected Lord enthroned on the other side of the scales, and do we hold them in balance? I would argue that probably all the weight is on the cross, and we need to start rebalancing our attention and our focus on the resurrection, on the enthronement, on the present ruling authority of Jesus. If, if you, you want a good example of this, you, you know, I, I've done worship and youth for, for the last 10 years off and on. And, and so you learn to track trends in worship music. And over the last 20 years, there's been a major trend in, in worship musics using the, the pronouns I, me, my. It's just shot up like crazy and has overbalanced the songs that actually talk about the Lord. Now, that's not wrong. That, that's perfectly legitimate. I'm just trying to say too much of a good thing is a bad thing, right? That's all. And the Psalms themselves perf- perfectly do this. They talk about individuals' pain and the sufferings of the people writing the songs, but they just as much are collected together with songs that are about the Lord, the whole Lord, and nothing but the Lord, or at least the community and the crew of the people. You know, a few years back, like 2016, 2015, there was a song called Reckless Love that came out. Uh, and there was a big controversy in, in theological circles. Uh, and I was uh, uh, still in seminary at the time. Or, um, and it's like, well, can you really call God's love reckless? And for me, it was like, I, I don't care about that. That's just basic language. That's just how it works sometimes. He's just trying to make a, a literary point. It's the bridge of that song, not the chorus of, of saying, oh, the overwhelming reckless love of God. It's the bridge that, that really irks me. Oh, there's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. It's all the, uh, the detention and a focus on that song. It's about what God does for me. And that's what modern worship music often is. We're just drawing all the attention to ourselves rather than giving it away to the Lord and pushing it back on him and getting caught up in his story, bringing it back onto ourselves when we're suffering or when we're thankful, which hopefully was this past week, right? The scales are out of balance. And the way that we start rebalancing the scales is to look to the events of Christ after the cross. And that will actually bring us to, to this idea, you have to unite the cross with what comes after, okay? The cause cannot exist apart from the king. You cannot get to verse 19 if you don't understand verse 18, which is why I've spent all the time on this. The mission means nothing without the Messiah. There is no purpose without our prince. There is no responsibility without our royal ruler. I mean, pick your alliterated term. Pick one of these to memorize and focus on. But understand that you must unite the king and his commission. We cannot just do what we've been doing for generations. Starting at verse 19, and what we need to do, divorced from verse 18. A scale has two sides that need to be in balance instead of divorced from each other. Our scales are out of balance. An incomplete story of Jesus is being perpetuated at best. And it's only once we acknowledge the king's presence authority in verse 18 can the atoning effects of the cross be properly applied to the process of verses 19 through 20? And that process start playing out to the fullest extent to create what the New Testament calls, you know, mature believers. Mature disciples, complete, perfect, fully formed, finished. Lots of different English words. But the king must first be reunited to his cause by his crew, by his community, by his people. Otherwise, we will never understand verse 19 in context. Therefore, what's that therefore, right? That's the question they teach you to ask in seminary. You pay thousands of dollars to learn to look at English words and then figure out what it's there for. Uh, so, therefore, what's it there for? To actually tell you that, you know, what I'm going to tell you in 19 and 20 is the application of verse 18. If you believe in verse 18, this is what you do in 19 through 20. And it's very simple. Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, maybe not that simple, but what is a disciple? That should be our first question. A a, a disciplined learner of a teacher about what to believe and how to act on that belief. So what's a disciple of Jesus? A learner living under Jesus' authority as the resurrected king. It's as simple a definition as I can give you. 
Now, I have to put the word learner in there because oftentimes we're just lazy. We don't care to learn new things. You, just, just, you can't boil it down to, look, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. That's oversimplifying. You have to be willing to learn the ways of the king. And the first thing that you're going to have to learn is you need to be baptized. Baptized into the crew, the community, the church. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Baptism is the first public step. A confession of obedience that somebody now believes that Jesus is the king in verse 18. The one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, and they are devoted, publicly announcing their devotion within the community that is also devoted to following and learning that king's ways. That is your initial step, but it's not the end. You actually have to learn the king's teachings, right? Teach them to obey. Take your time when you're learning because you've got eternal life. There's no need to rush, but you have to work towards it. Don't be an accidental learner. Be an intentional learner. And then teach them to obey whatever teachings you learn as you learn them. It's not that complicated. It's just consuming. How much more likely are you to, to, to seek obedience to Jesus if you unite the present reign of Jesus in verse 18 with a call to be a disciplined follower? Pull these things back together. Can you go on ignoring him once you realize he's been more than just crucified? Can anyone disobey a king without that king responding? I mean, if you were getting ready to go visit the president right now, how would you act and conduct yourself in the president's or the governor's presence? Sunday morning is coming into the presence of a king. How should we conduct ourselves? Being his followers and learning and living according to his ways tell us how we should actually conduct our lives as if we're always in the presence of the king. Because we are. You can't just go day after day, week after week, month after month, never opening the king's book and never learning his story. Maybe if we only ever think of him as just a nice guy who died for our sins, we could go on ignoring the rest and never implementing the disciplines. But a king actually demands obedience from his subjects right here, right now. And to connect this back to verse 11's hesitation in verse 17, look, let me just say this. It's better to need the time to digest the food than to starve for lack of bread. If you need time to digest the teachings and the multiple meanings of Jesus' full story, if you're not going to figure it out in a day. The apostles didn't. They lived through it. This, this point on the mountaintop, this revelation, this explanation of his resurrection's meaning, that's just the beginning point. Now they have to go take it into their minds and understand it and devote their lives to it. Take your time. Eat as many meals as you need, as slow as you need to, and digest those meals of God's daily bread. But you've got to eat. If you refuse the discipline necessary to learn Jesus' teachings here in verse 19 and 20, you know, that just means you refuse to ever live obedient to those teachings anyways. How are you going to live according to his teachings if you don't learn those teachings? If you're submitted yourself to learn those teachings, you're exponentially more likely to put them into practice. Unite them. Because the king in verse 18 and his cause of being and making disciples are meant to go hand in hand. And we have divorced them for too long. I mean, what, what type of disciple do you think Jesus is looking for? A lazy one or a hardworking one? Which type of disciple do you think will, he will reward someday when he returns? What type of disciple do you think you are? Because no matter what we're going through, we have this promise at the very end. I am with you always to the very end of the age that I am with you. The Emmanuel. Here's your Christmas message. God with us. The Emmanuel is still present with his crew today. So what is his crew doing? Anything? And this just circles back to the beginning. Um, his, his narrative starts. This is 
what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, so I tagged this along to the end. His, Matthew's narrative starts with the prophecy of Emmanuel and Messiah and the, and the birth of Jesus. Here he ends it back where he begins, and he comes full circle once again. There is no reason, there is no excuse, because God is resurrected again from the dead and is available, living and alive with his people everywhere. So, we don't have any excuses. There are none. And we've got to bring it all back together again. We've got to. So take the time between now and New Year's and start focusing again on your resurrected living Lord. On the King who's ruling right here, right now. And you'll start asking yourselves the proper questions about how your life is supposed to go to actually live under that King's reign. And you'll start looking back at the cross and you're realizing, now that's power right there. That's salvation power. And unfortunately, you'll probably start looking like Spider-Man, and you'll also feel like you're trying to bring things in that we've divorced for a long time. But that's just what it means to follow him sometimes. Let's pray. Lord, here in this day and age, we are as deeply flawed as everybody was back then when these stories were recorded and when they happened. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us, empower us to unite once again what you have held together. It is difficult sometimes to see the purpose of your resurrection because we're so focused on ourselves that your call to obedience just goes over our heads. Humble us here in the West. Show us Jesus Christ alive again from the dead so that he may rule in his crew, so that we may reunite our king with our cause here in your community. You are wonderful and you are kind and you are powerful to do all of this. And we thank you in advance for unleashing this power to save us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.